Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a pretty awesome guest. I'll say awesome. She's a great person and we kind of got in contact last year uh, through similar stories. Welcome, Megan. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. (laughs) That's all right. Um, So, yeah, as I said, we've got quite similar stories. We both, both our families went through the IVF process and both had premature babies um, in 2021, which is, yeah, pretty, pretty huge year. Yeah, it's a life-changing year. Um, it's kind of a weird basis to meet someone, but at the same time, it's kind of the best way to connect is through other families that have been through the same thing because I feel like those who haven't had a preemie baby or been through the IVF process don't quite understand the same as, I guess, the, in quotes, normal uh, process. So, um, yeah, nice to be in touch. It is, um, and it was. Uh, I did slide into your DMs, which is um, <laughs> a lot of these things. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's how a lot of things happen these days. Um, so, I do want to thank you for jumping on. I know you're in quarantine in New Zealand at the moment, preparing for a World Cup. Um, so it's kind of good because this can kind of take a bit of time out of your day while you're in quarantine, but it's also you'd prefer not to be in quarantine at all. <laughs> yeah, oh, we just had the good news, though, that we uh, have been reduced to seven days rather than ten, so that's a huge plus for us. We're a couple of days out now, so quarantine with an infant is definitely quarantine to what I did last year in New Zealand. Last year I could you know, kick the feet up, just enjoy people bringing me food three times a day, but uh, a <laughs> little bit different with uh, screaming bubs, but at the same time she's getting all her cuddles in the fresh air zone as, as much as possible. I, um, I want to take it back to your younger days, um, just to sort of paint a picture about who you were as a person growing up. So, you know, I, like I know you, you did love your cricket um, from quite an early age. Um, yeah. Outside, outside of that, who were you? Like, um, and where I'm going with this is, you know, obviously you have a lovely partner in Jess, you know, when did it come to you? And I, I probably won't use the correct terminology or anything like that, so I do apologise, but when did you, I guess, realise that um, your preference was women? Um, oh, that one's always tough. I think I think I knew from a young age. Um, I would say 10 or 11. I realised that I was a little bit different. I just obviously, like most children, kept it to myself. Um, I went all throughout high school having standard boyfriends, um, sporty ones, and it was just um, a strange time. I knew deep down what I was feeling, but at the same time I was like, nah, it's cool. You can fight it. Like, I think I was stuck in the mindset of it's a choice, all that kind of I yeah. guess, bull crap that comes with it. Um, and honestly, I did not have the guts to come out until I finished high school. So um, I had my first girlfriend at 18 and things just kind of were easy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, this, is, this is how it could have been, you know, had I had the courage. And then what was amazing was when I actually came out publicly and by public, I mean, Facebook was standard. Um, <laughs> everyone in high school, we had this weird reunion for my friend's birthday. Everyone was like, yeah, we knew you should have just came out. And I was like, well, why didn't you just say something like you could have saved me what five years of pain. But um, yeah, I knew from a young age, denied it. Um, and then, and once I was in an environment where I, I felt safe, which I feel like cricket is safe, as well as most female sporting sides, it's very safe and accepting. Um, 
yeah, I've, I've found women and I was like, well, this is a much simpler way for me because it feels right. And I regret not coming out in high school. That's for sure. I wish, I wish I had the courage to do that, but at the same time, I wouldn't change anything because I've ended up with Jess. So, um, things ended up okay in the end. Now you certainly did. And I, I, I love your response because so my cousin who I've had on the podcast and she's going to be wrapped up a shout out. So she's, she's now 18. She came out to her parents when she was about 14. And, um, I know she did cop some grief from people, you know, teenage boys and stuff like that. So for her to probably, and for other people, even boys, um, who are just struggling, you know, with the confusion within themselves, you know, hopefully they can take something out of that, that being open from an honest age is, um, I guess makes, can make her life a lot easier in the long run. Yeah. There's, there's definitely pros and cons to both. Like I, I know that high school was easier because I stayed in the closet, but I also know that I could have been a lot happier had I been with someone I wanted to be with during high school that you just then have the cons of then, you know, the odd terrible person who's going to say things. But I would like to think that we are moving in a much more accepting era and, I misjudged my friends. I thought that they would judge me back in high school and they were, they weren't those type of people. And I think it was just my own fear eating me up. So I think that, yeah, it's a different world we live in now. And I'd like to think that kids coming out in their high school years are just going to be another, another teenager. Yeah. And that's my wish as well. Um, and I look back into my high school days and I'm, I was, I guess, a typical high school student who probably just wasn't prepared to, not accept, but will open enough for people to actually come to me and say, hey, this is what I'm managing. But um, I think we're all, we all go through those teenage years where we're just completely ignorant to what's going on. But I think you're right, it's definitely changing. And I don't want to pump your tyres up, but I think you're a big part of that change for the next generation in not just that aspect, in a lot of aspects um, to life. So what... Once, once you sort of, or once you did come out, once you got a girlfriend, what was there any challenges that came up, and is there any challenges still coming up for you with? Um, I was going to say your issue, but it's not an issue with other people's issues with it. Um, kind of. I, I was super lucky. Like I have never really said the words "I'm gay" to my dad. Never needed to. He's just a free-flowing fella. Um, my mum wasn't great at the start. Um, she's got Christian values and was just a bit iffy with it. It's absolutely fine now. No issues. I think it was just, a, I guess, the shock factor. And once I brought home my first girlfriend, she was like, fell in love with her and was like, oh, this is cool. And it was just so it just took her to kind of be around it to accept it, which I think is the case for a lot of parents, to be honest. Um, you realise that they're just a normal kid and you want them to be happy. But um, I, I would say the only issues that now arise are on social media, much like a lot of issues. Um, homophobia is still one of them. I would say the comments are getting less and less and most of them come from people of other, other nations, third world nations that don't quite understand or they don't have that culture yet um, that is accepting or, or tolerating. So, And sometimes too, it's not even coming from a bad place. It just it looks that way in a comment. So <laughs> a lot of times I'll, I'll post a photo of me and Jess and it'll be like, are you lesbian? <laughs> and I'll just reply and be like, yeah, mate. And they'll be like, okay, happy happiness to you. 
And yeah. like the way they've typed it looks aggressive, but that's just how they're asking and they just kind of want confirmation. And, and sometimes, yeah, it is from a bad place and people say bad things, but um, I mean, <laughs> you can take it. You can't be on social media if you can't take that stuff, especially if you're going to be posting photos, it's, it's open slather to everyone, unfortunately, but um, I would say most things are good. We've had the, the odd thing, you know, in person where people still stare at us when we hold hands and that mainly stems from the older generation and, uh, it's just different to them. So I feel like it's not always coming from hate. Um, so we just kind of throw that off with, I remember how once we did have in a concert, this random guy around us who was clearly off his head and just kept like telling everyone around us that there were lesbians behind us. And I was like, what a weird thing to say. I think people can realize that, you know, I'm like a bit weird. And then eventually the guy behind me like grabbed him and was like, what the F are you on about, mate? Can you leave them alone? And like shoved him out the way. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> I, we were like, just kind of going to leave it. Cause we're like, I mean, he's just, he's annoying, but he's harmless. And so there's just random little instances like that. Like it's, it'd be a very different world if I was a gay male. And I know that, and that's what's unfortunate and slowly, very slowly that's starting to change. But I feel like we're already more accepted, I guess, being lesbians rather than gay. So we've, we've been pretty lucky um, to not have too many bad experiences. Is, uh, I, even, um, I even go on people's social media and see those comments and um, I get like frustrated. So how is it for your family and your friends that, you know, stand by you? What, because you hear a lot of athletes talk about it. They're like, oh, I'm not bothered by the comments, but it impacts my family. What's it like for them? Yeah, I know Jess gets more frustrated than I do at them. Um, I Sometimes I just don't even check the comments. Like I'm just someone who's not overly a heavy user on Instagram. I'll post when I probably think I should in terms of just trying to keep some content there. But um, it'll be more so Jess or some friends that will go, did you read what this guy said? And I'll hop on and, yeah, it wouldn't be a, it'd be a nasty comment, so i just delete it. Um, but we yep. really take that no further. And unless it's someone attacking um, me as a person, then I, I'm not too offended by it. I remember snapping on Twitter because I posted a photo um, not long after Riley was born and there was just some nasty comments and just standard third world countries, again, don't understand how two women can make a baby and I just, like, let rip in, I guess, an educated way. And I'm like, there's, there's Google, mate. Like you've, you've clearly got access to the internet. If you have access to Twitter, um, look it up. Like it's called IVF. And sometimes like I'll do my best to just reply in a sensible manner. And I will admit it's hard when you're working on emotion, but that's why I try and not reply straight away. And I'll wait till I can give an educated response. Otherwise there's no point And you're just going to be fueling the fire. I did read that article and it was, I think it was eloquently put in a very forceful kind of way. <laughs> so, <laughs> <It's amazing>. oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we probably, you're probably running through your head and Jess's heads with probably some much more uh, rated responses, but um, <laughs> you do need to peg it back because it does, it adds fuel to the fire. So when did uh, Jess enter your life and when was the decision that you two, I guess, I firstly um, want to get married and what was, I guess, that period of time like because I, I'm assuming that marriage wasn't legal just yet. Yeah. Um, what am I, 22, we we would have officially got together when I was 22, um, 29 now, which is scary. Um, 
yeah, and the years flew by. I, I had no intentions of getting married when I was younger. Um, it wasn't, I guess, you know, when everyone says every girl dreams of getting married, that wasn't, that wasn't me. Um, I don't know whether that was because I was gay. I felt like I wasn't obliged to do it or if it was just me, but yeah, I had no real intentions, but, um, a couple of years in, I realized that I wanted to, to marry Jess and I was the one who proposed, um, a couple of years in and we said, we'll wait until it's legal. So, um, and then the whole postal vote came along. That was, that was a pretty shitty time. If I'm honest, there was a lot of, a lot of backlash on social media, a lot of like just random pamphlets were getting in the mail that were just absolutely atrocious. They were attacking, they were just fear mongering. And yeah, that, that was a really, that was a hard time because I was trying to be a real advocate for it and, and push for things on social media and whatnot. Cause it's a pretty bloody simple vote. And I don't know how gay people getting married is anyone else's business other than the people getting married, but, um, the government made it so, um, so yeah, that was kind of tough. And when we were kind of halfway through that, Jess and I said, we're like, look, if some reason this is a no, that's just a low and we'll go to New Zealand and get married. Yep. Um, and luckily it was a yes. And so we're like, great, waited out and yeah, ended up getting married in, in McCarran Vale in Adelaide at a beautiful winery. And yeah, it was, uh, we definitely wanted to wait till it was legal. Um, so that's why we were going to go to New Zealand if it, if it wasn't approved, but um it was a shame to have to have that process to, to get to that. And you, you managed the, um, that time, you know, getting through that would have been quite difficult. How did you guys manage to get through that individually and as a couple? <laughs> well, we had very different approaches. Um, I'm, we well, said the word forceful before. So we were, I remember we were living in Brisbane at the time in this little unit and I put this pride flag out the front cause I was like, nah, like people need to piss off. Like I was just kind of like, nah, I'm not backing down. And Jess is like, what if people, you know, egg our place because of it? I'm like, well, stiff shit. If they do, they do, you know, like they're, they're the bad people. I was like, I'm not putting this away. So, um, yeah, we had different approaches in that sense. I think Jess is slightly more fearful of consequences where I'm a bit more, you know, forgiveness, not permission. So, yeah. um, we, we lent on each other a lot. We, we spoke a hell of a lot and like, uh, most of my friends are gay as well. Um, so they're very understanding of the situation we're in and even speaking to people like my sister and that, who are not involved in the sporting world, not gay or any of the above. And she would be just furious at the things people were saying, mm. like, and would go off a trolley about it. And they're like, I don't know how you deal with it. And like, well, you kind of have to deal with it like on an everyday basis in a way sometimes. So you just learn to deal with it. So um, there were definitely hard days where I would ignore social media and, and try and ignore the telly, to be honest, cause there was crap on both those things. But, um, the end result was what we wanted and really felt the need to celebrate that. Cause it, it was a hard fought win in the end of saying that shouldn't have been. Well, it shouldn't have been a fight <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. I don't really understand that process. I think it sets a precedence to a lot now with any new law that comes in, should we do a bloody poster vote? I don't know, but yeah, that was a strange time. So move forward to what becomes, oh, not, not, no, this isn't strange. It eventually just becomes a strange time. But the IVF process for you guys, what was what was it like, the challenges involved, how did you overcome it? Um, and I know there's different challenges for different couples for different reasons, but in the end there, there is challenges with the process. What was that like for you guys? 
Yeah, um, it, we were actually really lucky with it um, in terms of the actual process was really quick. It was all the kind of lead up. So I guess for me, because uh, we did reciprocal IVF and it's my egg, it was um, choosing the right time to extract my eggs and what cricket I was going to miss, um, getting you know approvals for the drugs I was going to take so that if I was drug tested, I'm not going to get banned from cricket. Um things like that. So it was kind of a longer process in choosing the sperm donor. So obviously for us, that's going to be a requirement and that was long. So since we went through Repromed, a South Australian company, um, the only choices were South Australian donors or international. And there's only something like 10 or 11 donors in SA and it's just too close to home. You already know everybody there anyways. So we decided to go with um, California Cryobank, which was like a bloody catalogue. It was just... (laughs) pages and pages and pages of donors of so much information like if you want to you can hear their voice and it was just an overload of stuff and we're like whoa like we don't we want good medical history and we want them to tick some of the boxes we want them to tick so that process was long as with time difference we would email and say yep interested in donor number 1576 and then by the time they get back to us two days later with time difference they're like sorry unavailable um i reckon we ended up with like our maybe ninth or 10th choice. Um, so we definitely didn't get the one we wanted, but at the end of the day, we're like <laughs> what they look like and all that jazz doesn't really matter. It's more about the genetics. So um, that was long and then genetic testing and, and whatnot. And then we had to have the sperm already available for the fresh transfer. So we had to have the sperm before I got my eggs out. So again, the timing was like kind of off. Like I didn't get my eggs out when I wanted to because we didn't have the sperm. So eventually I kind of just like bit the bullet and I was like, nah, um, in January, January, 2021. Yeah. Um, I went, nah, screw it. I'm going to do it this cycle. I'm going to take them out and ended up going through that process. And <laughs> with COVID being around, it actually pushed out my games of cricket. So I didn't end up missing any cricket. Yeah. <laughs> I was extremely bloody lucky. And I was like, hell yeah. Um, and we got a large amount of eggs out and made a good amount of embryos. And so I was like, wow, this is like the dream, you know, it means we probably shouldn't have to go through this again. <laughs> and then we went in for an appointment in February um, just to go through the embryos and how they went about and, you know, just talk about that. And our doctor simply asked, he's like, oh, when do you plan on starting to try? And we and Jess just looked at each other and I'm like, we don't know, like we'll, we'll try and find a time that's right. And He's like, why don't you try this month? <laughs> and because of that simple question, we're like, all right. And we did, and we got it first time around. So like once we actually hit the go button, it was very quick, very smooth and very lucky. And then obviously things changed with with Riley and the pregnancy. So things went downhill, but the actual IVF process, once we got going was smooth. It was just a long time to book appointments and get the sperm and pass the psych meanings and, and whatnot that's involved. But the actual extraction due to preg- and into pregnancy was, was really smooth for us. So we're very lucky there. Is that, it's actually pretty, very, it's similar to ours. So ours was like just everything just went really smoothly once we got to the process, but us essentially, uh, and this podcast isn't about me, but um, <laughs> for us, it was, uh, the process of actually trying to have kids was quite long and that was what caused the problems when we got into the IVF process. It was, and I know it's not the same for everyone. People don't just first try a bang and have a kid, but um, I think the challenge is that you still have challenges with that. So 
Wendy, obviously Riley was cooking away in there. Um, you, when did things start to, I guess, make a shift for you guys and um, Riley's health? Um, so everything was was going perfect, really, to the twenty week scan, and they noticed that. Um, the umbilical cord wasn't connected to the centre of the of Jess's placenta, so they they were like, "This is going to cause some issues." When we're not quite sure, um, we'll just do more scans and be more on top of it. And so that was at the twenty week scan, and then they were going to wait until twenty eight weeks for the next scan. And our OB was like, mm, "Nah, there's a couple red flags here, so we're going to have a twenty four week scan." And so we went in for that one, and. At the 20-week scan, she was saying, like, the 20th percentile, so still small, but 20th percentile for everything. And they're like, yep, cool. I was a small baby, so it was Jess. She's kind of bound to be. And then 24-week scan came along and bang, bang, bang. She was under 1% for everything. She had barely grown and all these red flags went up and they just could not say, stop saying the words small baby, small baby. Like, everywhere they went, they redid the measurements 10,000 times, got more doctors in, redid them, redid them, and... They, look, they said, look, you know, you, you're going to have to go to an appointment with your OB today. Um, and we knew we were in a bit of trouble. And so, yeah, they managed to squeeze us in with our OB that day. And we went in and saw Monica and she's like, look, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, she's not really growing. Um, she has grown a little bit, but not much at all. And this would be due to the placenta. So um, pretty much we need to do weekly scans from here keep an eye on the fluid around her make sure she's not in distress and be ready to take her out any day from now. So she said, she's like, go home, pack your overnight bags um, and just have them there just in case, because this is a matter of, you know, the next six weeks. She said, this baby won't make it past 30 weeks in, in the womb. So, and I was like a bit stubborn. I was like, nah, she will, she'll, she'll make it past 30 weeks. So I was like, I have no doubt. And then, um, we went into hospital for the first time at 27 weeks, I believe. And yeah, that's right. And the CTG was showing that um, she's in a little bit of distress. So they did some ultrasounds and they were like, no, nah, unfortunately you're going to have to stay admitted until we take her out. And we don't know when that will be. And they're like, be prepared to, to be in here to have your baby. So like, okay, you know, like change our mindset, like cool, Jess is in hospital. Here we go. And then three days later, they're like, oh, we actually found, the abnormality you're fine to go home it's all good oh. and we're like okay <laughs> so, so 27 weeks three days whatever we go home and we're like oh shit well that was a scam we're like back to it back to weeks you know here we go i'm like we're gonna hit 30 i was like we're all good we're home now and then i think it was 28 yeah tw on 28 weeks and not that long later um just couldn't didn't really have as many kicks in the morning as she's used to and she's like now nah, I've, I've just got a bad feeling I want to go get her checked and so we went into the hospital and a CTG so shows some drops in her heart rate and they're like no nah, unfortunately we're gonna have to admit you again and they're like we mean it this time and saying you're in here to have the baby and Jess was hooked up to a CTG machine for oh, like six hours a day poor thing um I couldn't think of anything worse but um yeah, so that, that went on for about a week. Our OB would come in each day and be like, look, your ultrasound looks okay. We'll just keep going. And that kind of just went on and one went on and on and on. And it got to a Tuesday morning. Our OB came in and she was like, all good. Um, I'm going home for the day. Just a usual day. You know, let's keep going. We'll see how long this piece of string is. And so I went off to training and 
I finished training at about, I think it was 6 PM, something like that. And as I was getting in my car to go back to the hospital anyways, Jess rang and her first words were, they're doing it tonight. And I was like, what, hang on, what? And she's like, they, she had an acceleration in the heart rate rather than D cell. They think she's in distress. So they're taking her out tonight. And I was like, okay, well, I'm in my car. I'm coming back to the hospital anyways. I'll, I'll be there in five minutes. And, um, yeah, we got there and they're like, look, you know, we're going to send you upstairs. We're going to give you some magnesium sulfate, some other drugs. And by 10 PM, we're going to take her out. And so we've gone from, I don't know, 10 AM in the morning being like, Oh good. You know, it's just another day to 12 hours later delivering your baby. So it was quite rushed in the end. Um, and it was clearly the right decision because the second we took her out, um, she just started stacking on the weight and getting bigger. So, and was always kind of really healthy from the start. We were super lucky with, um, she, she cried when she was born. So we heard a little scream, which was great from 28 weeker. And, um, was never on oxygen. So she went, she's ventilated for the first couple of hours of her life and then went straight on to CPAP. So yeah, we've been super fortunate with, she was just not getting the nutrients she needed. She just, she was healthy, just couldn't quite grow in that environment. Um, and they made the right decision in the end. They, they did. I actually can't believe you, as you said, like um, you heard the scream and then she just kept stacking on weight. That's like, that's unbelievable. That just, I guess, shows the strength of, little girl you have um and I, i'm assuming that well i'm not assuming i know in the strength of the mother carrying the baby to be able to go through that what i mean we'll, we'll talk about jess in a little bit um but because the my admiration for mothers that give birth is just astronomical <laughs> um what what were the feelings for you like through that period of being in special care nursery and, and Nikki, you know, the, the daily, you know, leaving, how, how do you feel that, you know, leaving your baby at the hospital? Yeah, I think the first couple of weeks were really, really tough. Um, so the first five nights, obviously Jess was still in recovery, um, staying overnight there. And if she wished she could, you know, go down and see Riley at 2am and whatnot, but, uh, drugs wise, she probably couldn't, um, <laughs> And yeah, that was, that was really hard. So I think, yeah, for me, it was, it was different hours if I'd wait until they kicked me out, which was generally around 11 PM, go home and come back at crack of dawn next day. So that was a really like exhaustion part of it as well. And then mentally exhausted, but at the same time, I don't know, I just had this real trust in Riley. And for me, like I knew the doctors wouldn't lie to us and say, she's going well, she's not. And all throughout, like I'm, I love the medical side of stuff. So for me, I needed explanations for everything throughout the entire pregnancy and would ask a thousand questions a day. Um, and they were always so happy to answer and explain if I could medically make it up in my mind, then I could make sense of it all and really trust her and what she's doing. So I was very different to Jess with, I was very literal in, in the thinking and thinking, you know, I know that you know, this beeping means this. And when this happens, this changes this numbers. Um, and if I could make sense of that, I was like, she's sweet, you know, like she's doing well. Um, this is, this is a tough little cookie we got here. Jess was a little more emotional, which was what I knew was going to happen. We're, we're both just like that as people. Um, that's why we balance out. So a lot of it was spent, I guess, reassuring her, um, that I, was reassured, you know, yeah. like I, I, I believe in her. She's doing well. 
the doctors aren't here to fluff about, like they're here to do their job. And if there was something wrong, they're going to tell us. And so a lot of that first couple of weeks was spent um, doing that. And then there is the fear of the unknown of, you know, all you do is read that, especially premium babies, but babies in general can just snap and take two steps back for no reason. And so we were also kind of preparing ourselves for that to, to, you know, ring up in the morning and go, how, do, how was Riley overnight? We'll be in soon. And for them to go, oh, look, you know, we've had to put her back on this or had to do that. And that never really came. So we were, we were super lucky in, in our journey in there. And the nurses, like, they're just incredible. Every, every single one of them we met was just, they're born to do that job. And we know that they're underpaid and understaffed and overworked and just still come in with a smile on their face. They take care of your baby. They, they reassure you. And um, I can't thank them enough for, for that environment we're in for, for public hospital as well. Like it's just, which wasn't our plan at the start, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously things changed. Um, yeah. We couldn't have had a better environment in that sense. And, we were lucky with Riley that her journey was relatively smooth. So she started in, you know, the starting NICU ward and was out of there in a couple nights and into the second NICU ward. And then as soon as she hit a kilo, um, they put her into Scaboo. So it was like um, minimal care kind of required. It was just your usual cords and whatnot and getting her in or out of the isolate for a cuddle was the hardest part of the day. <laughs> um, trying to base your life around her cares, you know, changing her nappy and all that was the hard part. I'm like, okay, when do I do my gym? Okay. It's going to be in between this cares and then in between this meeting with the pediatrician. So it was for, for a period of time trying to fit in cricket was really hard trying to figure out my, my training schedule. And luckily for us, we're at women's and children's hospital, which is right across from Adelaide Oval. So I could literally walk down, do my gym, come back up and try and time everything um, beautifully, which generally did work out for a while, which was great. Um, but, yeah, we, we only really had one day of setbacks where she came off of um, her OptiFlow and into an open cot in the same day and I went to training that same day and then Jess rang halfway through and was like, Riley's not doing good, can you come back to the hospital? And so I came back and she was really struggling to be, breathe and um, they put her back on OptiFlow and back into the isolate and that was a really scary day, but they just admitted they're like, look, we probably shouldn't have done both changes in the one day. And from there, we just kind of reset the process and two weeks later they took her off OptiFlow, waited a couple of days and then into the open cot. And so we've we've really, for what was a long and hard journey, it's also been relatively smooth in t- terms of the, the health of Riley. We've been very lucky. I think I think you're probably underselling yourselves a little bit as parents because, like, and I say, I say that because you brought up a good point there that you you know you still went to training, you still did these things that were really important for yourself. Um, and this is leading into a question as well. It's not just a um, giving a big, giving a just a big head moment, but <laughs> how important do you find? Because I. I'm in a few NICU groups now, obviously being through that and so many mothers and fathers don't actually do anything for themselves. And I understand why, like I completely get it. Um, But it is, it's so exhausting having to wake up, check your phone. Whenever you're not around your phone, you you panic that you're going to come back to a phone call. And then when you've got your phone, you check it and to see if you missed the noise. Like how important was it for you and yes as well to actually do the things that you needed to do as well 
yeah, oh, it was crucial. And like I, I got to admit, if I probably wasn't there to push Jess to go for our walks to get our coffee and whatnot, she probably wouldn't have done it. And I know that she would have like felt guilty about doing that if I wasn't there to push her. I, I have requirements with cricket. And so for me, I, I remember having a bad day um, where I did feel guilty and just felt overwhelmed. And me and Jess went for a coffee and I was like, look, I'm, I'm struggling because like my job relies on my body. It relies on it to be in good shape. Um, I was like, I need to get my running done. I need to get my gyms done. I was like, I can catch up on the skills part later. I'm like, I've done enough bowling in my life to, mm. to can just slide back into that. But I'm like, gym and running, I can't get away with not doing. Like, it's just body-wise, it's not possible. And I said to Jess, I'm like, I felt like there's been a couple of days where it's, you know, come at a bad time or I've um, left and, and missed her cares or something like that. And, like, that's where Jess is obviously understanding. But there's there was days where it completely overwhelmed me where, you know, I'm like, well, I just don't have the energy to go run some kilometer efforts in the uni loop today. Like it's just, it's not there. And Jess would say, she's like, look, how shit are you going to feel if you don't do it? And I was like, damn it, you're right. <laughs> and so I'd go and get it done. And that would, it would make me feel better just because I know I'm ticking the right boxes for, for my job. And I know how good that is for me to just get out of that bloody hospital, to get out of, the Skibu area um, and out of away from the, all the noises. Like for me, I'm a very hyper person and to have constant beeping and machines and sounds and noises and conversation, it's very overwhelming and I can't tune out of that. Like it's not really a strength of mine. So um, yeah, actually leaving the hospital was the only way for me to get away from those sounds. Cause I feel like you can even hear them when you go to sleep at night. Like you just, you hear the beeping sounds. So um it was absolutely important. And I think we were really good with making sure that as a couple, we would go get lunch together or go get a coffee together each day. And then in between that we'd do separate breaks. So, um, I would have my, you know, my cuddle and cares with Riley and Jess could go out for her walk if she wanted. Um, and we'd try and split it for that, especially once I went back to cricket, um, a bit more full time where my trainings weren't just an hour gym. They were, you know, three or four hour skill sessions. So, I would go off and train in the morning and then I would take the Arvo shift. So we, we've gotten to a good routine with it pretty quickly. Um, I was lucky that I have a very understanding workplace who are willing to be flexible and say, look, you know, we don't care when you do it as long as you get, you know, three gyms and three runs in this week. So um, we were just, we're lucky to have each other in a way like Jess understands that cricket is, you know, my life, it's my job, my responsibility at the same time, I understand how she's feeling and, and what she needs, even if she doesn't know it. So it's um, a, a real balancing act, I think, sometimes of realising what's – if you can't really look after Riley if you're not good. Like, it's it's the same with anything. Um, so, yeah, just making sure that we did the small things um, to keep ourselves happy. I'll tell you what, I think that part in itself is probably enough for people to listen to um, because I think you summed it up. Um, pretty well I was like as you were talking I was like oh we did that we did that we did that except not the cricket part because <laughs> well, I can't my skills are already no good so there's no point at 33 um, <laughs> and so what were the things that other people really did um, do to help you guys friends family and even you know your workplace you know Cricket Australia Cricket South Australia um, 
fellow teammates, you know, because people do go through this day, you know, every day is people going through this. So what can their friends and family do? And, and how do you also, because it's really hard to also embrace that support. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's probably been my downfall in life is never being good at asking for help. I don't think as Australians we're good at it. Um, <laughs> we all have that natural ego. But um, we were so lucky with our friends and family cooked meals for us. Like that was huge. So um, we obviously, no matter what you buy lunch out, like by the time you get home, you don't want to try and prepare lunch for the next day and, and whatnot. And there's definitely no time to prepare dinner. So um, we were so lucky and our friends would just drop stuff around to our front doors. Cause in the COVID world, obviously no one's allowed to come into the hospital and, and whatnot. So we had Jess's um, parents making us dinner. We had friends dropping it over from across the road, friends that didn't even live anywhere close to us who would drop off meals or even just snacks, <laughs> like little things that were a big deal. Cause we, I don't reckon had stepped foot in a Coles or Woolworths for months and months and months. Like it was just, um, it was, it was tough to try and organize that. And I think that was the biggest thing was just the amount of friends that stepped up in that time was incredible. Like you really see a friendship circle in hard times. And to be honest, I probably hadn't been through any hard times in my life to kind of see that. So to have even, I remember we met this young couple in the park where we live. Um, they, they'd just moved to SA and a couple of days later we had, a meal on our doorstep and they're like, let us know if you need anything. And I was like, we met you two days ago and you're ready. Like, you know, like just things like that. Like, we're like, people are pretty incredible. Like as much as we can say it's just, it's a hard world and dark times and whatnot. Like there were some really beautiful people that stood up for us. And like, I think just checking in is great, but also understanding that we're probably not going to reply the same day. Um, and you're also always having the same conversation so you can get a little bit over it, but also knowing that it's coming from a really good place. So we just, we were lucky that we had friends checking in constantly and people bringing around food. Like that was big for us. Cause we probably weren't getting home till, you know, eight or 9 PM, sometimes longer. And then you just basically eat dinner, feed the fur children, <laughs> go to bed, wake up and repeat the same thing. So um, we definitely weren't indulging in sorts on the odd occasion. We would try and make the time to go to dinner with friends in the city. So so somewhere we could walk from the hospital, but um, yeah, we were just lucky. I think the, the dropping off of dinners was the biggest thing because you do kind of forget about feeding yourself sometimes and um, that would often go astray and, you know, you don't really want to come home and eat baked beans at 10 p.m. each night. <laughs> oh, I completely agree with everything you said and I was like even getting emotional thinking back to one of the times <laughs> where I got home at 10 o'clock and there was just a bag on the doorstep and I, we didn't even know who it was from and I just cried and I was just like this is, this is too much like you just don't hits, get, yeah. yeah so and I don't know did you get emotional as you were thinking back to that as well or is that just me oh yeah it's all still raw like I was actually trying to speak to my psych the other day, our sports psych, because um, I still haven't really cried properly about it all. Like I've, I'm someone who doesn't really cry. Like that's just who I am as a person. And I keep saying, I'm like, I need a day of like bawling my eyes out because mm -hmm. I feel like it's all built up from there. And there are just so many mini moments where I was the same where like you just, you start to tear up out of sometimes out of nowhere. Like, and it's clearly just a, a buildup of emotions, but um it's definitely all still raw. And I think 
you know, I'm guilty of if I'm sitting down for half an hour, I might scroll through photos on my photo album and I'll look back <laughs> and I'll see that, you know, Riley's head was the size of three of my fingers and it's just confronting and you look at her now and you're like, how has this changed so much in, you know, five months? So it's it's all still so raw and I don't know when that will change or if it will change, but um, absolutely the emotions are, are easy to bring up there. It's um, I know we're nearly pressed for time, so I only have sort of two questions to go here. Um, and the first one is, um, has Jess mellowed as a mum or is it still much <laughs> like her playing soccer, slide tackling in from uh, <laughs> nowhere, taking people out? <laughs> She was another woman when she plays soccer. It is the funniest thing in the world. Um, she's the softest person you meet, but an angry person on the field. I, I love it. Like, I absolutely love it. But um, she, uh, parenting, she was born to be a mum, if I'm honest. I don't often like when people say that in the assumption that all women should be mothers, but she was born to be a mum and has always had that nurturing nature about her. And I did not have that till, <laughs> till I probably met Jess. I didn't even want kids. I was like, oh, whatever. Um, and so she's just uh, the perfect mum. I don't know. She's, it's just, she's got the nature for it, the patience for it. And off the field of soccer, she is so mellow, so soft. I'm still working on teaching her to say the word no. She's not the best at that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, her parenting skills, she's just so patient um, and just, yeah, really built for this. And I think for me, I had a lot of fears because I didn't really know what I was going to be like as, as a mum. And, I mean, I knew I would love Riley, like that was a given, but you just don't know how you're going to be as a parent and you can set all these expectations and until you, you know, have the baby, you, you don't know how you're going to be. And to be honest, it's been a lot more natural to me than I thought it would be. And I'm friggin' thankful for that because I was very frightened. But, um, yeah, Jess is just, I don't know, there's not much I can complain about there. Like her as, her as a mum, there's, yeah, there's no faults there. Her as a person, she still needs to, be a bit more forward and be a bit, <laughs> learn how to say no and have a confrontational conversation that's just still annoys me. But um, all that aside, I don't know, there's, um, yeah, she was just born for this. And I think, you know, she has gone through that stage of feeling guilty of not getting through the pregnancy and, and feels like somehow it was her fault. But sometimes you just need to remind her that, you know, we did everything possible and we are the healthiest people possible. We could not have done anything more for for Riley during the pregnancy, um, in the build up, during, after. So there is, we've ticked every box. And so sometimes it just needs to, she needs reminding that, you know, that at no way was she at fault for anything to do with Riley having to come early. Like it's just the simple things of pregnancy and these things happen. So, um, there was that little period there of, I could see in her eyes that she didn't feel like a good mum. Um, but she, yeah, she's the perfect mum. I, I don't know where she gets it from. And I think it's, um, uh, she's from turning to her and seeing you guys, she just, it does, it looks like it becomes natural to her. So it's good to hear that because obviously we know social media can sometimes seem a bit off, but it's, so it's good to hear that. Um, and I think it's important that all mothers understand that it's not their fault if a baby, most 90% of the time, it's not their fault that a baby comes early as well. Like it's, but I, I do understand and the, um, the blame that can, can come from that. But the reality is I know with Alicia as well, she was just, she was so healthy um, and it just, even the doctors, they can't explain it. So it's just one of those things. Um, 
as as you know, we went through a bit last year, and I believe there was a higher power there that was um, saying this baby needed to come out. Just the, my final questions: um, What's it like for you being a mum, and has it changed the way you look at not only life but your cricket now as well? This is the only cricket stuff we'll talk about. It's it puts life into a whole new perspective. Um, yeah, for me, cricket has been my my whole world for oof, 10 years, basically. I've been playing for Australia, so it's been, I guess, my job, um, my profession, my, my life for 10 years, and you get stuck in that rut of basing, I guess, your worth on your performance a little bit, and we as athletes do that. It's It's natural, but I think now it's like we just had the ashes, you know, we just – we just stumped the palms and had we lost, I wouldn't have cared as much. Like uh, that sounds bad, but I'm like, I'm uber competitive. The minute I step on that field, it's a bit of white line fever. We've all got it. Um, do anything to win, but, um, you know, had we lost, I'd Riley and Jess are going to love me all the same. And I probably didn't have that perspective before because I would just stress about more so the performance side, because I know that if I don't get picked, then there's a possibility I might lose my contract because they come up every 12 months. I don't have my contract. We can't pay the bills. And it just kind of stems, I guess, of life worries. Um, but then, yeah, from a cricketing point of view, like now I'm like, well, well, shit, there's bigger things in this world than, than how I bowl my soul ball today or <laughs> if we win this series. Um, so I think that's been the biggest change for me. I've I definitely learned patience a lot more. Um, I needed to, so <laughs> never been good with that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's probably softened me a little bit. I think deep down, I've always been a little bit soft, but I just have a super hard exterior, and I think it's softened that a tiny bit. But other than that, I don't know. I just think it's a it's a whole new world, and it's so exciting. And just having a little a mini me that um, is going to love me all the same, whether I perform or if I don't, or if I have a bad day or a good day, I still get the same smiles when she wakes up. So it's yeah, it changes everything in that sense. I want to end it on that, that note and I want to say thank you for joining me um, and the audience and sharing what is probably, I hope, the toughest part of your life. I hope there's not these many this these challenges and thank you for sharing your insight, your tips, your, your mental, I guess, capabilities of working through all this um, for everyone to hear um, and good luck for the upcoming World Cup. I know I'll be watching um i will be taking days off work um to watch it uh, which my wife will not be happy about um but she knows i'm obsessed with cricket so that's fine so thank you no thanks shane it's nice to uh nice to talk about something that isn't cricket and something that hopefully uh can help other people because it is a, a small group we're a part of and i think it's a, a bloody special one Thanks for listening to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. If anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings, please call Lifeline on 13 1144. For any further information or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at shane at vitalityfit.com.au. That's V-I-T-A-L-I-T-Y-F-I-T-T dot com.au.